I was just hiking into an area looking for a badger den. And uh, on my way out, something started following me out of the woods, and I thought I just spooked up a bunch of deer. And after about a mile and a half hike out of this something following me, uh, you know, lo and behold, I there it was, you know, 70 feet away, broad daylight. And it caught me so off guard. I was so ill-prepared. It just was, you know, basically it was, it was in April 20th, 1997. And, uh, and after that happened, I, I, I realized that, you know what? All these people that although they seem to be nice people, some of these people are telling the truth. And this subject really needs to be seriously looked into. And that's why I've been in it for all these years, because I like to seriously look into this subject. Were you frightened at the time or just in awe? Oh, t- terrified. In awe at first, then terrified after. Once it was all coming down to the end of the experience, I was like, I just wanted to get the hell out of there. Yeah. It's called common sense. Welcome to this week's episode of Ohio Folklore. Your host, Melissa Davies, is going to take you on a journey through Ohio's most legendary stories. You'll learn the myths, the histories, and everything in between. Come discover what lies beneath the surface of what only seems ordinary in the Buckeye State. Time is short, so let's get looking. Please welcome your host, Melissa Davies. Hello, listeners. I'm so glad you could join me for another episode of Ohio Folklore. Today's topic comes at the request of a listener who shall remain anonymous. I have to admit that when I first saw the request for an episode on Bigfoot, my first thought was that this mythical beast of the forest did not pertain to Ohio. I'd always thought of it as the hairy monster that roamed the wilds of the Pacific Northwest. Surely, the lore surrounding the Sasquatch doesn't apply to us here in Ohio, right? Well, maybe some of you listeners are more informed about the subject than I was, but what I found pretty early on in my research is that Ohio is in some ways the epicenter of the centuries-old legend. Take, for example, the Ohio Bigfoot Conference held every spring in Salt Fork Park in Guernsey County. It's the largest gathering of Bigfoot enthusiasts in the entire country, attracting several thousand, and it sells out every year. The park is known for Sasquatch sightings, and staff hold Bigfoot night hikes, which run every holiday weekend in the summer. So, apparently, through the centuries, us Ohioans have developed a relationship with the hominid of the forest. The earliest reference I was able to find comes from late 18th century, when Native Americans of the Delaware tribe, residing in present-day Tuscaroras County, warned of frequent encounters with the hairy ape-like creatures. Tribe officials were known to leave out offerings of food in order to maintain peace. Moving forward into the 1800s, you can find accounts of Sasquatch attacking carriages as they traveled down lonely roads through Ohio's wooded hills. Since then, the sightings of the beast have increased in frequency, especially through the late 20th century. 
We'll hear in-depth descriptions of these accounts, which are well-publicized. These sightings have become so well-known that in Ohio, we've given Bigfoot his own nickname, the Ohio Grassman. According to the Bigfoot Field Research Organization, a group that has recorded known sightings since 1995, 66 of Ohio's 88 counties have documented sightings. The most numerous sightings occur in the eastern counties of Portage, Guernsey, Columbiana, Stark, and Summit. It is thought that the heavily forested and remote areas in these regions provide an ideal habitat for the creature's survival. So apparently the legend of the Bigfoot is not relegated to the lush wilderness of the Pacific Northwest, as I had previously thought. I wanted to learn more about how we here in the Midwest have become a prime location for reported sightings. And in my search, I had the good fortune to make contact with a Mr. Mark DeWorth. His was the voice you heard at the beginning of today's episode, recounting his own personal experience of an encounter with the Bigfoot in 1997. Since then, Mark has devoted his life to researching the phenomenon and is now a veteran Ohio Bigfoot investigator. He is a curator for the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization and an organizer for the Ohio Bigfoot Conference. Mark has been a prolific leader among Bigfoot enthusiasts in the Buckeye State. The personal stories he's gathered during his time are intriguing and compelling. I'll let him tell you in his own words. Ohio's your traditional Midwestern state, and, you know, with with that, in fact, there is a lot of people that have originated from here and then moved out west and moved back, so there was always stories of Bigfoot over the years, and I think, uh, I just think because it has a lot of diverse topography, too. I mean, if you just take a line from Cleveland to Columbus to Cincinnati and go east of there, you know, that's your t- typical Bigfoot sighting areas in this part of the, in, in the state. And it's usually because that's where it starts getting a little rolling hills and uh, the woods increases and there's lots of water and lots of prey or, uh, in the state. I mean, our deer population is gigantic. Our turkey population is gigantic. And, uh, you know, something like the size of Bigfoot has to be eating some meat in its diet to maintain the muscle growth. So I think it's definitely taking advantage of our deer population. Ohio had a lot of people that got hooked on the subjects in the starting in the late 60s, early 70s when the Patterson-Gimlin film came to public view. And I think a lot of people, you know, was interested because they had heard stories, you know, or they had experiences that they couldn't explain. And, well, well, when someone pulls up a film of an alleged, you know, Bigfoot-like creature, now these people have a an outlet, let's say, to go and talk about what they saw. So I think that's helped provide that catalyst needed for people to start talking about what they had seen in their lives. Because there were people that were seeing them in the state in as early as 18, 1889. You know, that's been documented. Yeah. But but the fact is, is that, uh, you know, who are you going to tell it to? Who's going to listen to you? Who's going to even document yeah. it? I mean, even in the 80s, I mean, when I first got into this in the late 80s, early 90s, it was a, just a fun and laugh subject. I mean, mm-hmm. but I took it completely serious because there were people that were seeing something that fits the description. You can't just walk away from that. I wonder what first really piqued your interest in this. 
as I think being a, a little boy and being around eight years old and going hanging with my grandfather every Friday and watching TV, we used to watch a show called In Search Of. And uh, one episode with Leonard Nimoy, he talked about Sasquatch in British Columbia and North America. And I remember being so drawn into the subject and they were showing the Patterson film and all these different things. I remember going to my grandfather. I said, Grandpa, Grandpa, you know, is Bigfoot in Ohio? And, uh, you know, he looks at me straight face and says, I think it is because there's been stories all over the years because he, he, he loved reading newspapers. And he always found articles that, you know, mentioned Bigfoot, like, you know, hair-covered wild men, creatures like that. So, yeah, I mean, it kind of caught my fancy. So the following Monday, I went to Hilliard Elementary School in Westlake, Ohio, and I asked the librarian if they had any, believe it or not, uh, books on folklore, because I was afraid to say the word Bigfoot, because it was a touchy subject. And, uh, yeah. so, and the librarian took me over to the area where they had Indian and mythical folklore, and sure as heck I see with the word Loch Ness on a book. And so I kind of figured I was in the right area, and lo and behold, there it was, the word Sasquatch, and pulled a copy of John Green's book, Sasquatch Apes Among Us, and I remember turning over the cover of this hardbound book, and on the back there was a map of North America. And then I looked at Ohio, it said 17 sightings. When I saw that, I just like grabbed that book and checked it out immediately, and I, I I just I couldn't put it down. I had to read everything. So it, you know, I was a young young lad when I started, and then I obviously growing up and through middle school and high school, my friends knew I was interested in it, and we would always go to the midnight movies and and uh, watch The Legend of Boggy Creek and The Creature from Black Lake and anything Bigfoot related. We go and see, and uh, but then when I got a little older and you know, I was like maybe around 18, I went to this family reunion with a girlfriend who lived in eastern Ohio, which I had never been there before, like the extreme east central Ohio. And uh, I could not believe what I was driving through. It was all these big forested hills with no people. And then when I met her family or her uncle and aunt, they had this beautiful farm right near Clendenning Lake. And it sat in this bowl of forest on all sides. And my Bigfoot meter was just off the wall. And I remember asking her uncle when we were out in his barn, did he ever have any stories of any strange animals? And he goes, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, just anything that's out of place, not supposed to be around. And he goes, well, we've had a few bear sightings, uh, panther, cougars. And he says, matter of fact, the neighbor down the road said he saw a bear walk across State Route 800. And uh, so I thought, wow, that's interesting. A bear walked across State Route 800. And uh, so I just kind of kept quiet, didn't say anything. And at dinner time, his wife, Betty, she goes, I heard Bob was telling you about what the neighbor saw down the road, the bear. And I said, looked at her like, wow, they talked already. That was quick. And uh, <laughs> yeah. oh, yeah, oh, yeah, because, you know, I was dating their niece, so they were probably wondering what the hell I was up to. And uh, like, would you like to go talk to him? And I'm like, really? She goes, yeah, we'll go in the morning. So the next morning, we drove down the road about a mile from their property. On the other side of the road was where this guy lived, and he was worked at a brick plant in, I think, in uh, uh, Uricksville. And he would come home from the night shift and come down 800, go past Bob and Betty's house and go toward his. And uh, he goes, well, I was coming down the road. It was pitch black, and I turned my brights on, and he goes, I was coming up on the S in the road where where the creek goes underneath. And he goes, there was a bear standing there on the left side of the road. 
And he goes, so I slowed down. And he says, the bear did the most amazing thing. I said, well, what did it do? He goes, it, it walked across the road in three steps. And when it got to the guardrail, it just stepped over it. And he goes, I never knew a bear could do that. And I just like didn't say a word. I said, well, that's interesting. Well, thank you very much. And, uh, you know, stuff like that. And as I, I, he walked me out, my, my girlfriend's aunt was just sitting in the car. They said goodbye. I get in the car with her. We start backing out this long driveway. And I could see she was staring at, at me out of the corner of my eye. And I, I looked at her. I said, yes. And she goes, what do you really think he saw? And I looked at her square in the eyes. I said, what do you think he saw? She goes, he saw a Bigfoot, didn't he? And I said, bingo, you said it. Because, you know, I never liked planting the seed. And uh, from there, the rest was history. I started reaching out to people in Ohio that were investigating reports and talking with them and, and started helping out a lot of these investigations. And before you know it, uh, you know, 30 years has gone by, and I've investigated over 300 alleged reports in Ohio. I'm in the, I've been in the BFRO for, which is the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization. I've been in that organization, oh, since the late 90s, and uh, I'm a curator for the organization, which means I'm kind of like on the advisory board. And, uh, you know, I've brought in many investigators into this phenomenon all throughout, not just Ohio, but all over the country. And, uh, you know, and I lecture all over the country on a regular basis. Are there stories that over the years you've gathered that are really compelling and stand out for you? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's some amazing stories. I mean, one that really, really I like was uh, over in Richland County near Mansfield. Um, There was a lady. She was a bow hunter. And uh, she was up at her tree stand. And uh, she said on the other side of this creek, where she had her stand set up, um, there was a draw that led right to the creek where the deer would come down the draw, but that was the only way they could easily get to the water source. So she was watching the draw, waiting for deer to come up so she could nail them. She said, I'm sitting there up in my stand, and she says, I look over to my left up on the hillside on the other side of the creek, and he goes, she goes, I can see this big mass kind of moving through the forest. But I couldn't get a good look at it because the light, the way the light was and everything like that. And uh, she goes, as I'm sitting there thinking, God, this is way too big for a, a deer. She says, I didn't even think of bringing my, my bow up at all because I was just so perplexed at what this was. And she says, lo and behold, it, it gets to the opening where the draw is and starts coming down the draw. Well, she couldn't see it completely until it got to a certain spot. And as she said, as it got closer, she realized whatever she was looking at was not just big, it was, you know, huge and wide, uh, and it was walking on two legs. And she said that really startled her. And it came out into the opening, and it got down to the creek, and she says it never saw her, but it, like, all of a sudden, it was looking all around like something wasn't right. And as quick as lightning, it turned around and just bolted up the other way. And she drew a picture of it, I remember. And she was a pretty artistic woman, and it was freaking amazing. And I wish that I had that picture to this day. Uh, my other fellow investigator, he, he has it. And it was just okay. an amazing, amazing incident. And uh, and then, of course, you know, I mean, we could go, I mean, there's just so many, I mean, incidents. Uh, one of my favorites is the Stark County Sheriff, um, who was, who was hunting outside of... Uh, Millersburg, south of there, off of State Route 83, and he was hunting up in a tree stand, and this is an area he's been hunting for years, 
And, uh, so, so basically when, when, when bow season would go in, he would get out early in the morning when it was still dark to get up into his stand and he knew by his game cameras when the deer were coming down this area. And he goes, I'm sitting up in my stand. And, and the only reason he contacted me, he saw an article I did was in the Canton repository and he okay. read the article and, and they had my, my email and phone number and he called. And, uh, you know, and he was, he was saying that as he was up in his stand, he goes, he goes, you know, typical hunter etiquette is never hunt on anyone else's claim because, you know, you uh-huh. can get hurt, you can get shot. It's just not safe. And he goes, I'm sitting there up in my stand. It's still somewhat dark out. And he goes, I looked down the gas cut where he was, his stand was positioned on the edge of the gas line. And he goes, I looked down the edge line and he goes, I see what looks like a person literally walk out of the woods the same side as his and go into the middle of the gas cut into a standing there. Then it walked right back into the woods. And he goes, I think he goes, I thought that was weird because he says the only place you could park for this property was the farmer's house. And because the way the sound traveled, you would hear a car pull in or you would hear a door slam. And he goes, I didn't hear anything. So I was just kind of puzzled. And he says, as I'm looking and staring in that direction, he says, all of a sudden, here's two snorts. Well, the snorts were of a deer coming. And he says, I quickly, like, my mind, like, re- refocused itself on the deer coming. And he says, these deer start coming just like clockwork down this gas line, a whole pack of them, like 12, 13 deer. And he says, they start getting closer and closer and closer. He goes, I'm getting ready to pull my bow up. And he says, all of a sudden, he just hears this roar. And he, all these deer just start scattering. And he goes, when they started scattering, he sees this huge dark figure running right down the center of the gas cut. And he said it was running so fast, the deer were just panicked. He said one deer ran right under his tree stand. That's how discombobulated they were. And he said this thing was waving its arms in the air, and it drove like six or seven deer over into the far tree line. And he said when those deer got pushed into the tree line, he said the only thing he could explain what he was listening to was he, he asked me if I ever saw the movie Jurassic Park. I go, yeah, well, yeah. And he goes, do you remember the beginning? And I had to think about it. I go, oh, when the guy, when they had the raptor in the uh, in the cage and it kind of got out and pulled the guy in and killed him and the noises it was making when they were stinging it and stuff. And he said those deer sounded like they were being torn apart in the woods. That's how awful it was. And he goes, I was so scared. He goes, I had a forty-five side piece on his on, on him too. He goes, I sat up in the stand for two hours after light before I would get down. He says it scared the crap out of it. He said the sounds he was hearing was like death. And he said this thing drove those deer into the woods. And the others were waiting. And that's what they do. Another one that really stands out is a a cattle farmer. We'll just call it in south of Columbus, maybe about an hour. He's one of the biggest cattle farmer owners in the in the area, and he's in a very wealthy county for that part of the state, and he's a very wealthy man. And I was doing a little town hall meeting on someone's back porch down in this area because there were so much things happening, and, and this is very recent within the last three, four years. And so I basically 
asked this property owner, I said, any of the neighbors you know, would you just invite them over and don't tell them what it's about? And I just want to have a little talk with them. So I hear I get in front of about 12, 13 neighbors and start telling them what's been going on on the property that we were on. And then a couple of them immediately spoke up and says, I know what the hell he's talking about. I shot at that thing too. It killed my dog, you know, all this stuff. You heard all these stories. But this one guy, he was like an old-time farmer wearing the big pair of car hearts with the big suspenders on and everything. And I look over to him on the corner of my eye. He looks white as a ghost sitting there. And his huh. wife had her hands on his shoulder like, it's okay, it's okay. He just Because he was listening to hear what these other people were saying. And I looked over at him and I just said, hey. I said, it's okay. He goes, no one here is going to make fun of you. You hear what they're talking about. He goes, I'm not going to make fun of you. And he choked up a little bit, and he started talking. And when he talked, he said, I mean, he told one of the most amazing stories I, I think I've ever heard. And and what I liked about it was uh he basically, as he was expanding his cattle operation, they, at one, they only had maybe four or five employees at one time. Well, you know, they had, they were raising black Angus calves. So they had to, like, at nighttime, you had to patrol your property for coyotes because they would come in and try to kill your calves. And that's big money. And, uh, so he's one night, his wife and him were on patrol in the truck driving around the property. And his wife says, honey, who's that coming out of the old silo? They had one of those big old concrete silos, like the old ones you see all over Western Ohio that no one uses anymore. And and uh, he goes, ah, I, I don't know. He goes, who the hell is that? So he goes, I turn my car, my truck, start driving toward it. And then he goes, that's when I realize whatever it is is totally uniform in color. And it's walking right toward his brand new barn where the calves are. And uh, so he finally gets close enough with his truck to realize that something isn't right here. So he gets out, gets out of his vehicle with the car running lights on it pulls off his 12-gauge with slug off the back rack, and he starts yelling at it. Who the hell are you? You're on private property. I'm going to shoot. Get off my property. And he says, this thing stopped dead in its tracks, turned and looked at him, and started walking right toward them. And he said it started maybe 60, 70 yards away. And he says it started walking at, toward him. And he realized that whatever this was was not a man. He says it was so wide at the shoulders and so tall. He says it finally got to the point where it got within 20 yards. He unloaded two slugs right into it. And he goes, I know I hit it. I saw the puff. I The thing stopped dead in its tracks. He says this thing stopped in its tracks, turned around, walked right back toward where it was originally going toward this, toward this new outbuilding for the, the calf building. And he walked right down the edge of the of the of the barn, the brand new barn. And he goes, I have a light hanging out on the barn, which he does. I verified it. It goes over the main door. It's exactly ten foot off the ground at the bottom of the light. And this thing, he says, when it walked by, its head was taller than that. It was taller than ten feet. Taller than ten feet. And then his, when it got to the edge of the property where the fence is, he said it just stepped over the fence like it wasn't even there. A four-foot-high fence, like, boop, just stepped over, didn't even jump, just stepped over it. Okay, now here's the killer thing of the story. Okay, that happened 12 years ago. 
And then he went on to say, he goes, every year, maybe two, he goes, I know when it's back. He goes, because I start having calves come up missing. And he says, these are the calves that, you know, it's not a bloodbath where the coyotes come in and kill them. And then the state comes in and gives you a check to reclaim your loss. And he says, these are the ones where, you know how like calves, they have like, they're almost in like little houses they put them in. They're like little white houses, they look like huts. Well, yeah. he was not only missing his calves, the huts were missing. And they could not figure out, because it's all fenced in, what the hell was happening. And then finally, maybe about three years ago, when he, he's expanded up to about 25 employees, he goes, one of his, a couple of his employees come, hey, boss, you might want to come see this. I think we know where our calves are going. Well, here down in the hollow behind their house, down in the hollow were not only were the huts, but all the bodies of the calves, what was left of them were stuffed up in the trees, and the, the hides from the calves were laying on the ground in a pile. This thing was stripping the hides right off of them, just with its hands. And and that was like three years ago. Well, then he goes on to say, and he goes, well, I just saw it again. And, of course, everyone just turned like, huh? He goes, it was once again, we were patrolling the property at night here. He had two hands with him, and there was this thing again. And he says, this time, we I didn't make the mistake of getting out of the vehicle, but I drove as close as I could and hit my lights on it. He said it turned and looked at him. And I go, what did it do? He goes, it just turned and looked and then turned and walked back toward the hollow and went over the fence and was gone. And he goes, it was the same one. I go, what do you mean the same one? He goes, the one I shot 12 years earlier. I go, how the hell would you know that? He goes, because it had the scar on his shoulder and we could all see it. But, I mean, he wasn't talking like me. He was talking just terrified. And his wife was there the whole time. It must be quite a life-altering thing to have an encounter like that. Most definitely. I mean, believe me, when people have a Bigfoot sighting, it is a life-changing, you know, occurrence. I mean, that is not supposed to happen. You have a better chance of winning the Mega Million. You do. These things don't go out of their way to be seen. It's all accidental. Now that Mark has given us some insights on what the Bigfoot legend has meant to Ohio... We'll delve into the most publicized accounts. These stories I'm sharing with you all come from featured newspaper articles from the 1970s and 80s. For whatever reason, this was a time period that was especially active for Bigfoot sightings in our state. It was June 1980, outside Marysville, Ohio, Union County, and planning season was in full swing. Pat Poling, a local farmer, was eager to get out into the fields that night after returning home from his son's baseball game. The cornfields needed cultivating. By 8.30, he'd fired up the tractor and hauled the cultivator out into the field. He was glad to get at least an hour's work done before dusk would settle in. He was absorbed in the work, turning the hardened ground beneath him into wet, soft mounds. That's when something large loomed in the periphery of his vision— It had lumbered out of the woods and ran into the adjacent field. In that moment, time stopped. Pat focused on the hairy beast as it stumbled out from under a low-hanging branch. It must be a bear. Wait, do bears exist around here? He thought to himself. Pat's thoughts rumbled around in his head, trying to make sense of what he was seeing. 
Just then, the thing stood up straight, achieving its full height of over seven feet. It began walking away from him along the fence line which separated the woods from the field. Pat sat paralyzed in fear as he continued watching, unsure of what to do next. After a few moments, Pat felt emboldened considering he was on a tractor. He decided he would head toward the unsightly creature, so he let out the throttle and the engine roared. The oversized creature stopped dead in its tracks and stiffly turned its whole body to face him. Long, matted, dark hair covered the entirety of its body, including its face. The only distinguishable feature were its hands, which hung low near the knees. It was slightly hunched over with its bare palms facing outward, as if pleading. Pat searched for some way of understanding what it all meant, but its concealed face made the whole thing all the more unnerving. Seconds later, the beast retreated into the woods and out of sight. Two days later, a neighboring farmer and his son would come upon the same creature lurking behind their barn. Frightened and shocked, the two would yell at it. The thing startled and ran back into the woods from where it had presumably came. The following week, at about 5.30 p.m. on a Tuesday, Donna Riegler had been driving home from her work at an attorney's office in Marysville. She was glad to be heading home from a long day of answering phones and transcribing letters. As she neared home, she would have to cross a set of uneven railroad tracks. She was always careful to drive extra slowly over them, hoping to keep the car from coming out of alignment. She'd done this so many times now that the habit had become automatic. What wasn't automatic, however, was seeing what laid before her in the road about 60 yards ahead. Her first instinct told her it was a large, hairy dog. But that thought vanished when the thing stood up on two legs. At about seven feet tall, it stood with a slight bend. It was covered in hair, including its face, and held its bare palms facing outward as if in a pleading gesture. Donna hit the brakes and sat for a moment on the narrow road. The two sat motionless as she considered what to do next. She didn't want to get any closer to whatever this was, but there was no room for her to make a U-turn. She would throw the car in reverse and slowly back over the tracks she'd just crossed. She would continue backing a considerable distance, all the way until she reached a crossroad. She would turn down it and then head down the first drive. She would knock frantically on the front door of a stranger's house until the homeowner opened it. By then, Donna was sobbing hysterically. Two days later, another farmer, Larry Ramey, was working his fields in Logan County. His acreage ran adjacent along the Union-Logan County line. Like Pat Poling, he watched the creature walk out of the nearby woods. Only this time, it took notice of the farmer and started heading straight toward him. At a distance, Larry had first assumed it to be one of his farmhands. He quickly ruled this out on realizing its height, its matted hair, and its lack of clothing. Just then, one of his farmhands started heading out to him on another tractor to meet Larry in the field. The creature turned on hearing the second tractor approaching and retreated back into the woods.
A similar, unsightly creature would make repeated appearances two years earlier in 1978 in the village of Minerva, about 150 miles east of Marysville. It would soon become known as the Minerva Monster. You can find a feature-length documentary on this story called The Minerva Monster, released in 2015 by filmmaker Seth Breedlove. At the time, a public frenzy would center on one unassuming home in Minerva, Ohio. The Caton family would be the first to make sight of the hairy beast. It would begin one August afternoon when two school-aged children, Vicki and Hal, would burst into their living room pleading with their grandparents about what they had just seen coming out of the woods and into their backyard. Evelyn and Herbert Caton had always been level-headed people, and were sure their grandchildren were somehow being mistaken about what they had seen. But when their repeated efforts to calm them down failed, they finally agreed to follow them out into the backyard, if only to shut them up. The four of them headed out the back door. No Sasquatch. Nothing unusual but the lawn that needed mowing. Feeling vindicated, the grandparents turned to head back into the house, but the children stood before them, resolute, The thing had retreated back into the woods. They all needed to go after him, and they wouldn't take no for an answer. With a sigh and a wink to one another, the grandparents relented. The group made their way to the edge of the woods which ran along the property. After entering, they soon reached the embankment that ran along an abandoned strip pit. It was there, through some 50 feet of brush, that they could just make out the figure of a creature standing about six feet tall and covered in long, dark, matted hair. The children's vindication at seeing the beast was overshadowed by their grandparents' palpable fear. In hushed tones, they demanded a hurried return to the safety of their home. Without looking back, the group retreated downhill and shut the back door tight behind them. Perhaps they chose to believe what they saw was an oversized black bear. In whatever way they rationalized what they saw, the explanation wouldn't last. A couple nights later, the children had invited some friends over for dinner. Just as the group of them had sat down at the kitchen table, they caught sight of the beast standing not ten feet outside the window. A floodlight was shining down on it, casting a large black shadow on the ground beneath it. It was huge. It was hairy. Its face was concealed by the same matted dark hair. It looked to weigh about 300 pounds. Panicked, the Catons called the sheriff's department. As they waited for a patrol car to arrive, the thing slowly retreated back into the woods. Finally, Stark County Sheriff's Deputy James Shannon would arrive and step out of his cruiser. The first thing that hit him was an unusual odor that resembled ammonia. The front door of the Caton home opened before he even got to the front stoop, as the family ushered him in. Deputy Shannon noted the genuine fear on their faces and the tremble in their voices. They were desperate for some kind of confirmation that they were not in harm's way. Weapon drawn, Deputy Shannon would commence a strategic search of the property and its perimeter. The creature was gone, but he did find two long, coarse hairs— and in the days that followed, a team of officers would return for a more thorough search of the property, the woods, and the abandoned strip pit. Their efforts would only turn up a jawbone which would later be analyzed and identified as a cow mandible. About a year later, one of the Caton family's neighbors, a 24-year-old man by the name of Herbert Burke Jr., 
would witness the same creature crossing Lincoln Highway on foot. He caught a glimpse of it as he was turning into his trailer park. As the beams of his headlights landed on the hairy beast, maybe 40 yards away, Herbert slammed on the brakes and threw the car in park. He stepped out of the car to get a better look, and that's when he registered a height of over 7 feet, a weight of 3 to 400 pounds. The thing was covered in dark, matted hair, its face concealed. Within seconds, it took off running, pumping its arms with each stride as it headed for the edge of the woods. Herbert stepped back into his car and locked the doors. He got to thinking about the frenzied media reports that had been nonstop over the past year. Random groups of men had stumbled out of vans with their Dobermans carrying rifles and cases of beer, vowing to capture the thing. Hordes of reporters had taken to roaming the streets of Minerva, desperate to find just one local with an inside scoop. And then there were the gawkers, the vehicles inching by on the streets, people trying to peer into backyards for some glimpse of what they'd read about in the newspapers. Herbert thought back to hearing rumors from neighbors, of reports that people's roofs were being pelted with rocks late at night. Others heard strange guttural sounds coming from the woods, almost resembling human laughter, but not quite. The latest bit of evidence to surface were larger-than-life, human-shaped footprints in the soft ground around the Caton family's garden. These prints were quite numerous and ranged in size up to a length of 21 inches. Mrs. Caton had taken to setting out fruits and vegetables on a plate in hopes of preventing any loss of produce from the garden itself. Sometimes, when the Catons would be working in their yard, a silence would settle in. The birds and the insects would all hush. And then, a distinct odor would waft over them. Mrs. Caton would describe it as a musty smell, the kind you might associate with rotted seaweed from stagnant water. Inevitably, they would peer into the woods, searching for the beast, and see nothing. This had happened so often that they had grown accustomed to it. The creature, whatever it was, had no intention of harming them. Of that they were sure. An unspoken agreement had surfaced between the Catons and the beast. They would live and let live. Their neighbor Herbert, for his sake, hadn't bought any of the story over the past year. That is, not until the night he encountered the thing for himself. Rewind the clock about five years and travel 100 miles northeast to the college town of Oberlin. According to newspaper articles, Bigfoot made an even more dramatic appearance in the Buckeye State well before the hype surrounding the Minerva Monster. The night was warm in September 1973. 32-year-old Rudy Reinhold and four fellow hunters, a friend named Jim Chanley and his three boys, had taken three coon dogs out for a trial run. Rudy, a GM assembly worker, had been laid off from the job and was looking for some diversion. He hoped to train the young dogs before coon hunting season started. The group was armed only with the flashlight, none of them carrying guns. It was the dogs' first run at it, and Rudy hoped their natural tracking instincts would take over. So they headed out far away from the sounds, smells, and other distractions of civilization about 20 miles outside the city limits. The area was densely wooded and remote. 
In order to reach their destination, they crossed swampy terrain that was thick with underbrush. A light drizzle had just begun as they cut their way through it. The dogs made short work of the journey, bounding out ahead of them, baying and yiping eagerly, a sound that meant they were clearly hot on the trail of something. Not before long, the dogs' yiping turned into sharp, high-pitched barks. They treed their first prey. When they finally caught up with the dogs, Rudy shined the flashlight into the branches and spotted a raccoon, cowering as it clung to the trunk. The group was satisfied at how easily things had gone for the dogs' first attempt. They sat for a while until the excitement wore off on the dogs. Eventually, one picked up on a new scent, and they were off once more. The dogs moved out ahead of them once again, to a point where they were no longer visible. The group followed the dogs' calls until they came upon the edge of a cornfield, fenced off from the edge of the woods. By the time the group had reached the fence, the dogs had found their way over it and were deep into the cornstalks. Rudy soon found a gate and opened it, allowing the others through. The drizzle had stopped, and the clouds opened up, letting moonlight bathe the ground around them. They could see another wooded area on the other side of the field. Jim offered to head out into the field alone to retrieve the dogs. He handed the flashlight to Rudy, as the moon shone so bright he didn't need it. Rudy and the boys sat on the ground to wait with their backs against the fence. Jim walked about a hundred yards straight into the field, calling for the dogs. One of them responded immediately and came running to him. He was still calling for the other two dogs when a large, hairy creature could be seen emerging from the woods across the field. It stepped over the fence with ease and walked on two feet. Each person from their own vantage point had a clear sight on the beast that was now only a few yards from one of the dogs. The dog howled and then made a beeline for Jim. The beast followed after him. Jim froze as it approached. As it made its way toward him, it let out an ungodly scream. Jim yelled for Rudy to come help. He snapped to action, telling the boys to stay put as he ran out into the field carrying the flashlight. By the time Rudy reached Jim, the beast was nearly up on him. Holding the utility flashlight in both hands, Rudy swung down hard with it, connecting on its face. The creature screamed louder, covering its face with its arms in a defensive posture. Rudy turned the light to shine on it and saw its eyes, rimmed in red, along the edges. The two stepped back and watched it go on screaming and cowering until it ducked away into the cornstalks out of sight. When they couldn't see it any longer, they both started heading back toward the fence where the boys were waiting. They'd only gone a few steps when Jim yelled, Oh my God, it's on you. Rudy spun around to see it looming over him. It must have ducked down under the tops of the corn to sneak up on them from the other side. Jim and the creature all held the moment between them as if time stood still. The men had an opportunity to look closer at it, and they could clearly see that it was about seven feet tall. The beast had reddish, brown, matted hair and eyes about the size of a bottom of a two-cell battery. It smelled musty like mildew. On shining the flashlight at it once more, it screamed again. The men took off running in a dead heat this time, and when they finally reached the boys, the group was panicked, and the dogs were whimpering. The men managed to calm the group down. When a silence finally set in, they all listened hard for a moment. 
Nothing. Rudy then flicked the flashlight on once more and swept the rows of corn before them. There, standing between the stalks, were two reddish eyes staring back at them. The group turned and hightailed it back through the wooded area and another cornfield, toward the spot where they had parked their truck. Every so often, Rudy would turn back and sweep the area behind him with the flashlight. He'd find the beast quite easily at a distance of about 50 feet. The worst part of their retreat was making their way back through the other cornfield. The stalks rustled at every movement, and the sound of the beast behind them was unmistakable. It trailed them all the way, but made no effort to attack them. Whenever the group would stop, so would the beast, keeping a steady distance. Just as they were only about a hundred yards from the truck, Rudy stopped to turn around and get one last look at the creature. It stopped as well, just as it had every other time. This time, however, it huffed at him, kind of like the sound a bull makes before making a charge. The two stared at one another for a few moments before it finally turned back and disappeared into the cornfield. On finally making it back to safety, Rudy would take himself to the sheriff's office to report the unbelievable events he and others had just went through. The sheriff himself decided he'd take his own bloodhounds out the next morning to see if any evidence could be found to back up the incredible claims. He brought a tranquilizer gun in hopes of bringing back whatever they encountered alive. Rudy led the sheriff and his bloodhounds to the area, and the search began. At first, it turned up nothing until they found a set of giant footprints that ran along the muddy bank of the creek and through the wooded area. It took two of Rudy's strides to reach from one print to the next. The sheriff let the dogs pick up a scent around the prints and then let them loose. They had run down the creek about a hundred yards when their tracking calls switched to yelping and whining. At first, the men couldn't see the dogs through the thick underbrush, but they soon emerged from it with their tails between their legs. On seeing this, the sheriff said it was time to go. He would not go after something his own dogs were afraid of. In short order, the story got out, and Rudy became something of a celebrity throughout the town of Overland. The local newspaper ran a story on the whole experience. However, just as soon as the public interest started, it stopped. People came to view his story not with wonder, but amusement. They asked Rudy how much he'd been drinking that night. Others said it must have been a bear, or maybe it was just a man in a costume. Rudy was adamant. He didn't drink, ever. The thing walked smoothly, upright, with long strides, nothing like a bear. And it couldn't be a man. It was too tall, too massive. He could feel vibrations in the ground from its steps. Since that night, Rudy refused to hunt alone. He was always on the lookout for the beast's return. He would never shake the memory of that night's events. These are only a handful of the well-documented accounts of first-hand sightings of Bigfoot in the Buckeye State. It's remarkable to consider what it all means. To many, it's hard to believe that such a large creature exists, and with good reason. The, quote, evidence which does exist can be easily faked. This includes casts of footprints that people claim to find, 
Also, people have claimed to come upon nests in wooded areas. These are large gatherings of trees and shrubbery, wide enough for a Bigfoot to make a bed in. Clearly, these could be easily fabricated. Photographs and films can also be made with some clever use of costumes and convincing actors willing to play the part. Eyewitness accounts, although numerous and compelling, don't provide definitive proof. One of the most convincing arguments against the creature's existence is the fact that no remains of dead Sasquatch have ever been found. No DNA evidence has ever been discovered to substantiate an unknown species of this nature. I asked Mark DeWorth his thoughts about the lack of definitive evidence on the creature, and here's what he said. There's a lot of scientists that are very pro-Bigfoot, so don't let it fool you. A lot of them. It does make you wonder if maybe someday they'll end up finding something more substantial? I'm sure it's going to happen. I'm sure eventually one of these is going to be found dead or run over or who knows. But I, I, I truly believe it's going to happen in my lifetime. What an amazing time that'll be, huh? Oh, yeah. It will be a very, should I say, very interesting time, to say the least, because, yeah. uh, you know, I, I'll be laughing at people, though. I told you so. I mean, to be honest with you, I have nothing to prove because I, I, I know they exist. I've seen one. I, I've found multitudes of evidence, you know, track casts, audio recordings. I mean, we have a huge audio project in the state that we've been pulling recordings for years. I mean, some, some of the best recordings ever recorded of an alleged Bigfoot that, uh, you know, can't be, can't be, uh, you know, uh, substituted by any other animal. These, these calls are so unique. So no matter what you believe about Bigfoot in the Buckeye State, one thing is certain. He looms large in Ohio folklore. You have to admit the concept is intriguing. Perhaps Bigfoot represents our primal nature, something that seems so distant in a digital world of social media and Amazon Prime. Our belief in Bigfoot may stem from our fascination with the animalistic side of what it means to be human, to subsist with nature. The legend also represents a stubborn will to remain apart from the wider world. The Ohio Grassman, if he does exist, has consistently sought to evade detection. He seems to seek the solace of isolation, and usually only interacts with humans when forced, when we venture into his territory. There's something romantic about the idea that some distant relative of the human species lives without our comforts, like modern plumbing and Netflix. Maybe that most elemental part of ourselves has been lost to the ages. It's nice to think it might just live on deep in the woods beyond our backyards. This week's episode of Ohio Folklore has now come to an end. But the searching doesn't have to end here. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, head over now to OhioFolklore.com. You can also get in touch on Facebook. Thanks for listening. And as always, keep wondering. Keep wondering.